0: Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Exodus. Uh, last week was Torah portion Taruma, but since we had a Torah service last week at Beth de Kuhn, I did not do a teaching on Teruma. And Taruma introduces the Tabernacle, and it's continued on into this week's portion Tetzave. So I'm combining the two of them together. Uh, there's just no way to take this and, and cut it in half. Now, my main concern as we begin to study the tabernacles, that you'll listen to this teaching. And you'll think, okay, I understand the tabernacle now. And I'm telling you right now, no, you don't. You never quite get to the bottom of everything that's being illustrated by the tabernacle. The tabernacle takes up more space in the Torah. In fact, the tabernacle and the temples occupy uh, more space in the Word of God than any other subject. This is so critically important to God that it needs to be important to us as well. We need to emphasize in our teachings the things that God emphasizes in his word, and this is something he heavily, heavily emphasizes. And you might ask, well, why is that? Why is studying this this ancient structure so important to my life? And I'll tell you why. It illustrates your life. In fact, it illustrates everything God wants to teach in the scriptures. You can look at the description of the tabernacle as it's found in the Torah and consider it the picture section of the Bible. You know how when you read through a history book or maybe a a biography or some work of nonfiction or maybe a section of photographs and illustrations in the middle of the book? The tabernacle is that illustration section. And so, as we burn these images into our minds and meditate upon them and ask God to reveal what he wants to teach us from them, it will transform our understanding of who God is, of his program among humankind, and most of all, transform the way we see ourselves. Now, Though we're going to be talking about the tabernacle as a whole today, you need to understand that you can take any particular object in the tabernacle from the menorah to the Ark of the Covenant to um, the clothing that the priests wear, and you can study each of those items with the same level of detail and insight as we're studying the entire tabernacle. So there is a world of study here. And though it may seem kind of boring at first when you go through, you must understand that this is God revealing his heart. God is revealing to us the pattern he revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. So let's uh, use our imaginations as we go through this and let's learn what God might want to speak to us concerning our own lives. I want to start with a passage in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. God tells Moses, let them make me a mikdash. Now here's the word mikdash in Hebrew, and it comes from the word kadosh. There's the root right there, kadosh, which means set apart. We translate it holy, but uh, the word holy means set it apart, something special, something unique, that I may dwell among them. Now what's interesting. That phrase, among them, is bitokam in Hebrew. And bitokam means also within them. Let them make me a mikdash, I may dwell within them. And we know from Paul's writings, and also all the rabbis say the same thing, each of us is a tabernacle of God's Spirit. So as we study the tabernacle, we're studying about ourselves, our own makeup, our own nature. And God wants to dwell within you, within me, with each, within each individual. And so we need to make sure our lives are ordered according to the, the rules of the tabernacle, to the lines and the schematic of the tabernacle. And if we do that, we're going to experience God dwelling in us in a way that we never dreamed possible. So, that I may dwell among them or within them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the Mishkan. Now, this time, God uses the word Mishkan. And the root of that word, well, we're not quite sure. It most likely is the word Shekan. That's where we get the word Shekinah. Shekan means to dwell within. Um, so, the Shekinah, glory of God, would Shekan in the Mishkan. But another possible root is made up of the first three letters, mem, shin, kof, mashach And mashach means to draw near. And I believe if if two things don't disagree, don't conflict, then we embrace both of them. So God says, I want you to make a mikdash, a place that's set apart, that's holy, where I can dwell. And It's also going to be Mishkan. I'm going to dwell there, but I'm also going to draw towards me. And he says to make everything according to the pattern, the pattern of its furniture just as you shall construct it. Now the word for pattern is the word tavnit, and you see it right here in red. What I find fascinating about this word is that the last and the first letters the Tav at the beginning and the Tav at the end. And if you know the meanings of the Hebrew letters, you know that the letter Tav represents a cross. And in between, you've got the word spelled Beit Nun Yud, which can be pronounced Baini, which means my son. So we see here a cross at one end, a cross at another. And we know that when Yeshua was crucified, he was crucified between two other crosses, between two other people. And God placed Beni, my son, right here between two other crosses. This is the pattern. This is the pattern of the tabernacle. Everything about the tabernacle is a picture of God, his son, his salvation, and also of his people because he wants to dwell within us. And just as Messiah died, he gave his life completely to God, we're also told that I am crucified with Messiah. I'm also told that I am a child of God. And so everything I learn about Yeshua through the tabernacle, I'm also learning about me. I've often said, and the older I get, the more clear this becomes to me, if you want to understand God, you must also understand yourself. If you want to understand yourself, you must know God. And, of course, we can never understand God. He's God. We're not. But I can know him to the degree I know myself. And I know myself to the degree I know him. It's something that stays in balance. Well, without further ado, let's get on with the tabernacle. As you read the description of the tabernacle, this is a a rough idea of what we are reading about. And what we see here is that the tabernacle is this building here in the middle of this courtyard. This is the tabernacle. To be specific, the coverings of this building are what the Torah refers to as the tabernacle. And this tabernacle has two compartments, the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, you see the smoke coming up out of the top of the tabernacle, but it's not actually coming up out of the top. It's not a chimney. There was no opening in the roof of the tabernacle. This is the pillar of cloud that rested over the Holy of Holies. This pillar of cloud, by day, would arise and rest upon the Holy of Holies, and then would spread out to provide shade for the people of Israel as they encamped in the wilderness. And then out here in the outer court, this is the outer court and the entrance was right here you have two pieces of furniture I use the word furniture because I'm not quite sure what other term to use but we have the bronze altar where the sacrifices were made and then you've got the bronze laver which is filled with water and it was for washing the hands and the feet of the priest and the water would be drawn also to wash parts of the sacrifices wherever you needed water you went to the laver to get that. Now if we focus just on this part of the tabernacle, I want us to go down to this. This is that tabernacle building. Out here is the courtyard. And we just looked at the altar. We looked at the laver. The entrance was over here and then there's an entrance into the holy place. Now let's consider what is in the holy place and the holy of holies. If we could have a drone with x-ray vision, and we could put that drone right about here up in the air and look down at the holy place, this is what we would see. Here's the entrance going in. Here is the veil which would go into the holy of holies. And there are three pieces of furniture in the Holy of Place. On this side, we have the table of showbread, also known as the bread of presence. It's the uh, shulchan panim. It's the table of uh, the bread of faces. I'm sorry, the lechem panim, the bread of faces, the bread of presence, the showbread. We don't really have a good English translation for this. But there'll be 12 loaves of bread on this table, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And directly across from it is the golden menorah. And then right here is the golden altar of incense. No sacrifice is replaced here, only incense. And that incense could go up and over the curtain, better yet could go right through it. The fragrance would penetrate the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And if you could go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, you would be able to see the high priest standing just inside the veil in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And you can see the two golden chair beams, which were made out of uh, the solid gold cover. And here he's putting some incense on the shovel with the coals taken from the altar. Now, inside the Ark, inside this box, there were three items. There were the tablets... Of course, there were two of those, so I guess you could say there were four items, but there were the two stone tablets that God engraved with his finger. There was a jar of manna. And then there was Aaron's rod. If you recall, later on, we'll we'll get to the story, but Aaron's rod was made to blossom. They were almond blossoms and almonds growing out of this stick, this dead stick. And those three items were placed inside the ark. And we'll be coming to this uh, later as we go through the Torah and discussing these in in greater detail. Now, if you start with the beginning of Torah portion Teruma, you'll read about each of the items that made up the tabernacle And I want us to pay attention to the order. There's some very interesting things that we can learn from this. So at this point, if you just want to pause the teaching, start there with chapter 25. Uh, I'm sorry, is that correct? Yes, chapter 25, verse 1. And start reading through and just list the items. And as you go through, um, I'm sorry, chapter 27, chapter 27. And there are some items, and then chapter 28, 29, and 30. I don't know why I was thinking chapter 25. So you can pause and come back when you have completed the list, and we'll compare notes. Okay, I am going to assume you are done, and let's see if we have the same thing. You'll probably find you have one extra blank that isn't filled, and here's why. The first thing that is described is the Ark. And this is the box part of the Ark. But the next thing you have is the Ark Cover. You think, well, they're all part of the same thing. Well, they were put together. But they are described, if you look at how each item is described, these are described as two completely different items. They're made differently. They're introduced as two separate things. So yes, the cover did fit directly on top of the box, but they are described and treated as if they are two different things. So if you have an extra line, this is where that extra line gets filled. Uh, I don't want you to have to go back and erase everything. Just, Just squeeze it in there somehow. So you've got the box, then you've got the arc cover, the next thing is described is the table. It's the bread of faces, the lechem panim. Interesting thing about the table with this bread on it, this bread was eaten only on the Sabbath, only by the priest. I guess they could eat it after the Sabbath as well, but the way it worked is each Sabbath, 12 fresh loaves were brought in and placed on this table, and the 12 loaves that were there were removed and passed out to the priest for them to eat. And legend tells us that the bread did not go stale. It stayed fresh. And so when they took the bread off, it was, they said it was still just delicious and warm and, uh, and chewable. It wasn't at all stale. Now think about this for a second. During the wilderness period, the people ate manna. And the manna appeared on the ground six days a week, Monday through, or Sunday through Friday. But this bread appeared on Shabbat, and it was prepared by the priest and is eaten by the priest. Now, I'll keep reminding you as we go through the teaching that we are a kingdom of priests. We're not Levitical priests. We could not have gone in and served in the tabernacle, but we are a kingdom of priests, and spiritually, these things belong to us. And so there's a heavenly bread we eat each day. But on Shabbat, there's something special God wants to give us. That's the day he says, this bread that's been in my presence all week, this is something I want to share with you. You have to come in and get it. Then after the table is the menorah, the solid gold menorah. Now, after these four main items, and let's look at where they're located, we have, it describes first the ark and its cover. Then it describes the table of showbread. And then it describes the menorah. After that, it's going to start working outward. Outward. And this is one of the things that I want you to notice from this. God starts in the deepest, most inner part of the tabernacle, and then he works out from there. After the menorah, we have a description of the covers. The covers of the ark, or of the tabernacle. Now, this is something that's interesting that I don't want you to miss. In past years in the teaching I've just briefly mention this, but I want you to really catch it this time. In chapter 26 in verse one, it says, "You shall make the tabernacle of ten curtains." What it's saying here, what the language is saying is that the curtains, the fabrics and the hides make up the ceiling and are then pulled down over the sides and staked to the ground. These curtains are what are called the tabernacle proper, the Mishkan proper. But then as you go down, down to verse 15, it talks about the planks. The walls of the tabernacle were made from beams, these solid planks of wood. These planks of wood were 15, I'm sorry, they were 10 cubits tall, so that'd be about 15 feet. They were a cubit and a half wide. We don't know what the thickness was, but some people say a half a cubit thick, maybe a full 18 inches thick. These were massive, solid beams of wood. I don't think one man could possibly carry one. It would take at least two, maybe three, to carry one of these beams. And then they were all covered with gold. And it says in verse 15, you shall make the planks... For the tabernacle of Acacia wood. Now the rabbis make much of this, and I was uh, delighted as I was going through the the Midrash Rabbah, this massive, might call it an ancient Bible study about the Torah. And uh, much of what was in the Midrash Rabbah was, was uh, knowledge that's been around since before Yeshua was born. And, It says that this word, when you read it in Hebrew, it says, they shall make the mikdash lamishkan. I'm sorry, they shall make uh, boards lamishkan, for the mishkan. But the rabbis say we could take that word lamishkan, for the mishkan, for the tabernacle, we could pronounce it this way, lamashken, lamashken. You don't change the spelling, but you pronounce it differently. And it takes on a different meaning. When you say Lemishkan, it means for the tabernacle. When you say le it means for collateral. Now, what does that mean? And they realize that every jot and tittle, every letter of the Torah is placed there specifically. And God, because Hebrew is the language of transcendence, he intends for there to be other meanings to the word, sub-meanings, to bring out truth. And as they discuss that, they think, well, how are the beams, the solid part of the tabernacle, how are they collateral? And they say, when Israel rebels, instead of destroying the people, God allows the tabernacle or the the temple to be destroyed in their place. And though the people of Israel have been through many tragedies over the course of their history, they're still a remnant. They're still alive. They're still going. But when their rebellions and when their sins reach a certain point, instead of destroying and killing all the people, he brings destruction to the temple. And it becomes collateral for the people. But it doesn't stop there. This is the amazing thing. And I copied this directly out of the Midrash Rabbah, and I've put it in your notes at the end of the notes, if you print out the paper and the the visuals that I have on the, the iPad. It says this. Moses said before the Holy One, blessed is he, But they are destined one day, due to their recurring rebelliousness, to have neither tabernacle nor temple. What happens when they're rebellious, but there's no tabernacle, no temple to destroy? What will become of them then? The Holy One, blessed is he, replied, now catch this, I will take from them a tzaddik, a righteous man, and make him collateral for them. And with this, I will grant atonement to them for all their sins. That's prophetic, if you ask me. And right now, Israel has no tabernacle. They have no temple. But they do have a tzaddik. They have a righteous man. And in the Greek scriptures, Yeshua is called hat the righteous one. And he gave himself as collateral so that the destruction that is due Israel, that is due us, was all put upon him. So it's amazing as you look at the ancient writings of Israel, you find all these foreshadowings of the Messiah. So anyways, back on task. We have the walls, the covers, the walls, and then there's the veil, the paraket. This is the veil that divided the holy place from the holy of holies. This is the veil that Matthew's gospel describes as being torn in half from top to bottom when Yeshua died on the cross. That is the one change God makes to the pattern. This pattern for the tabernacle, later for the temple, is something that is eternal. It's something that God showed Moses from the heavens, the pattern from the heavens this is the reality but there's one change that God wanted made in due time and that was to remove that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place there's a lot to discuss there and maybe we'll get back to it before the teachings over so after describing the covers and the walls and the veil it continues then with the furniture we see the bronze altar that's out in the courtyard. So we've moved now from the, uh, the building proper and we're moving outside of the building to the bronze altar. And then we have the curtains of the courtyard. Unlike the tabernacle, which had these stout uh, beams of wood up on end, the courtyard is made out of fabric hanging from posts. And then after that, it seems, I think I've forgotten something here. Let me make sure. Go to the bronze altar courtyard. Oh, yes, the oil, which is kind of an odd place to put the oil. But this is oil for the menorah. There's another oil, the anointing oil, but that's for something else. Then chapter 28 discusses the priest garments, It'd be wonderful to take a few weeks and just discuss the priest's garments. There's so much to learn from these. And then it discusses in chapter 29 the inauguration ritual. So you've got these priests, but before they can serve as priests, they need to be inaugurated. They need to be trained and then brought in and ordained to do the work of priest. But then we continue with more furniture. We have the incense altar, the golden altar. It's that little one that's right in front of the veil. And we have the laver, the bronze laver. Now, I think of these two items as being like connectors. And I have another diagram of the tabernacle I'm going to go to quickly. Here is the bronze laver and here is the golden altar of incense. And I call these connectors, that's my own term, because the laver is what connects the altar to the holy place. You move in from the entrance, the first thing you encounter is the altar. This is where you bring your sacrifices. There's a washing And then only after you've washed your hands and your feet can you then enter the holy place. So this is the connector, the bridge from the altar, the holy place. You can't go into the holy of holies. Only the high priest on Yom Kippur, one day a year, can the high priest and the high priest alone go into the holy of holies. But the way the priest would connect with the holy of holies is by bringing incense every day on the golden altar of Incense. Because the fragrance from this incense would then go over into the Holy of Holies and be a sweet savor before our Lord. Incense in scripture always represents prayer. So we can think of the labor as representing our outer purity because we wash our bodies with water. But this incense altar represents something inside that then comes before the Lord. So this connects these two, this connects these two areas. The courtyard to the holy place, and then this connects the holy place to the holy of holies. Now let's continue with our our list. After the description of the labor, you have the description of the anointing oil, which is used to anoint the priest, and then the description of the incense that was burnt on the golden altar. All right? So some of the things we may notice from this is that God works from the inside out. Inside out. But you'll also notice when he describes the tabernacle itself, it starts with the covers, then the walls, then the veil. He works from the top down. God works in our lives. He makes internal changes first. He first of all works in our Holy of Holies, in our spirits. And he wants to take up residence there. Then his influence moves out into our souls and then even out into our bodies and we need to understand he works from the inside out he works from the top down it's an important principle we don't have time to go into all the details of that here but I hope you'll meditate on this you'll think about it and um, well we'll move on I mentioned body soul and spirit Because in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul, who was very well trained in all the things that we're discussing, he knew the details. He had been to the temple many times. He had studied the ancient writings. He understood so much about the the Torah and about the temple and about uh, the things of God. So he has authority to speak upon this. And he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Master Yeshua, the Messiah. These are the three parts that make up a human being, that make up you. And I'm astounded at how so many people I talk to, believers, they can't tell me what their soul is. They they all talk about how Yeshua came to save our souls. God wants to save our souls. And they share with people about how to save their souls. But you ask them to define the soul and they're left speechless. They don't know. And then when you talk about spirit, all they think of is the Holy Spirit. They don't even realize that they themselves have a spirit. And this confusion about the the body I 'm sorry, the spirit and the soul is something that really troubles me. It shouldn 't be this way. How can we grow our souls? How can we talk about the salvation of the soul? And um, how can we talk about spiritual things if we don't even understand these two important topics: the soul and the spirit. We all understand the body pretty well, and we 're very physically oriented. And we're familiar with the the outer part of our being. But this inner part, this part that is who we are, should not remain such a mystery to us. Just very quickly, and you've heard me talk about this many times in the past, you are not a body, you are not a spirit What you are is a soul. This is what you are right here. This is you, soul. When God breathed into Adam's nostrils, the breath of life, the nostrils are physical, the breath of life is spiritual, and when the two came together, man became a living soul. You are a soul, but we have a spirit and we have a body. The spirit is sensitive or should be sensitive to spiritual things. Unfortunately, it seems like most believers are not very spiritually sensitive. And then we have physical sensitives. And unfortunately, we're very sensitive physically. But we need to bring some balance to our lives. We need to become a little less sensitive about physical things and become more spiritual, uh, sensitive about spiritual things. But what we are as a soul, your soul is made up of your mind, your thinking, your will, your decision-making, and your emotions, which often get us in trouble. Our mind, our will, and emotions. That's who you are. That's what I am. And though our bodies can change over time and, and um and uh, eventually die, our souls, our mind, will, and emotions is who we will continue to be. We need to work on our minds. We need to have our minds trained. We need to have the mind of Messiah. We need to have God's word and his Torah in our minds so we're thinking the thoughts God wants us to think. We need to be less influenced by the world and more influenced by the world of truth and our wills. You know, the spirit is always nudging us one way and the flesh is really nudging us the other. You can think of a tug of war. And on one end, you have the flesh, the body. And on the other end, you have the spirit. But you, you are the rope. And you decide which one wins. Paul, a couple of times, talks about how the the body has strong desires that are, in, uh, that are opposed to the spirit. And the spirit has strong desires that are opposed to the flesh. And if we do not walk in the spirit, we will fulfill the desires of the flesh. We just will. But if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust and the desires of the flesh. We need to learn to walk in the spirit. But how can believers do that? They don't even know what the spirit is is so we have our minds our will and emotions that's who you are that's what you are but that always needs to change and grow and mature and your soul needs to come into closer alignment with God so here we are again with a diagram of the tabernacle so now you should be familiar with what all of these items are out here we have the courtyard and there's the entrance And in the courtyard, we have the bronze altar where the sacrifices would be brought. There'd be smoke, there'd be fire and smoke coming up off that altar. And then we have the bronze laver filled with water. The second area, the holy place, is this area here. It corresponds to the soul. You know, your body is kind of on public display at all times. And at least your face and hands should be. They belong to the public. They should be able to see your face. They should be able to see the works of your hands. And um, those are public property. So people can see us. They can point over there and say, there's so-and-so, and there's that person. But our souls are places that are more private. To get to know someone's soul, you need to become very well acquainted with them. So you know the way they think. You know what their wills are. You know what they enjoy what they don't enjoy, what their sense of humor is, or if they even have one. And so, though anyone could walk around out here in the courtyard, anybody could come in. Jew, Gentile, made no difference. Only the priests could go into the holy place. Only a few could go in there. But the Holy of Holies, this perfect cube, its height, its width, its length, are all the same. And this cube is where God dwells. And only one day of the year, on Yom Kippur, could the high priest go in to the Holy of Holies. This is the spirit. This is the spiritual part. And it's the least known, the least understood of our makeup. And yet, it is the part that everything else surrounds. It is the very core of what everything in the tabernacle is about. It is the goal. So as we look at these things, I want us to consider some things. And when we talk about the courtyard, I want to think about the physical, the body. When we talk about the holy place, think about the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions, the part that makes you, you. And when we talk about the holy of holies, I want you to think of your spirit. And as we go through these things, I hope you'll get a heightened awareness of your own makeup and how God has made you. So let's talk about light sources. Out here in the courtyard, it was illuminated by the sun, the moon, the stars, the natural light. Uh, there was no roof over the courtyard. And of course, it was subject to the wind and the rain and the weather. And it's like our bodies. Our bodies need light so we can see where we're taking our bodies, where we're going. But there's a light source in the holy place, and that's the menorah, this golden menorah. This golden menorah, which represents a different kind of light. It's not the natural light from outdoors. This is light that required work. It required The preparation of the oil required the trimming of the wicks. It required the lighting. It required a daily attention. And every day a priest would go in, prepare the menorah, and then light it so it would burn all night long. What was the light source for the Holy of Holies? It was God's Shekinah glory. There's no need for any exterior light for this. This is the brightest part of the entire tabernacle. God's presence illuminated it. The outer court was full of activity. There would be people everywhere, milling around, bringing sacrifices, walking around, talking, singing, yammering, serving, doing. And we tend to be very active physically, probably too active if we are honest about it. And you know, I know so many believers, too many believers, for whom physical activity is all they have. They serve. They help other people serve. They're always a part of the crowd. They're almost running laps in here. They are busy, 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 busy all the time. But when it comes to the holy place and the holy of holies, It's almost as if they've barred up the entrance and put a sign that says no admittance. Their own souls and their own spirit is an utter mystery to them. Their lives are completely external and they have no internal world because you must understand this part here, the tabernacle itself, this is our inner World. Do you have a rich inner world? If you don't, I can tell you how you can have one. To have a rich inner world, you must come to the altar. You don't bring sacrifices to the altar so much as you become the sacrifice. You are invited to be a living sacrifice, to give yourself, to give yourself completely and wholly to God, to give him your health, your life, your finances, your relationships. If you're single, it's your future husband or wife, or... To live a single life altogether you give all of these matters to God and say God whatever you choose for me I choose for me I want your will more than anything else and I want to give myself to you I want to serve you with my life completely and totally I want to be a living sacrifice Yeshua gave himself fully and completely for me I want to imitate that, and give myself fully and completely to you. And I know believers who are so physically oriented that they're always making sacrifices. They sacrifice their energy, their time. They sacrifice financially to serve people, but they never give themselves to God. They're people-oriented, but they don't know God. And people who don't have an inner world tend to be the kind of people who want to be needed, but they never want to need anyone else. And this brings us to another item about the inner world. I want you to think about this table of showbread. It had bread on it, 12 loaves of bread. And you have the altar with the incense on it. And you have the menorah with the oil in it. Can you think of something that all three of these have in common? Each one's a vessel. The table's a vessel for the bread, The altar is a vessel for the incense, and the menorah is a vessel for the oil and the light. But what do those three things all have in common? And the answer is, first, crushing. Crushing. You can't have bread on the table until you take the grain and crush it. You can't have incense on the altar until you take those elements and mix them and crush them together. You can't have uh, lights on the menorah until you take the olives and crush the oil out of them. There must be a crushing. And the next thing they have in common, they must all experience the fire. The bread has to be baked in the fire of the oven. The incense has to be set on fire or else it never fulfills its purpose. The oil in the menorah must be subjected to the fire or it will never give light. Crushing and heat, those are the things that make your soul rich and good and purposeful. So you have nourishment for yourself and for others. So you can be a light to others. So you can produce the fragrant incense of prayer to God. But without the crushing, without the heat, your soul becomes a pretty empty, dark, and purposeless space. And you know why people don't want to know their souls? I thought about this. And I think of the precious people I know who simply do not have a rich inner world. And I've noticed one thing they all have in common. They've all been severely hurt, usually when they were children. And that hurt usually came from a dad or a mom, or it could be from siblings and friends. But something happened that hurt them and wounded them deeply, so deeply. And so their motto became, I don't need anybody else. I don't need anybody else. And so whenever God wants to bring a crushing into their life, to bring out the fragrance of their lives, to bring out the light of their lives, to bring out what is really purposeful in their lives, they resist it. It says, no, I've been hurt enough. I'm not going to subject myself to any further pain. And as a result, their souls remain pretty empty and dark. So I again invite you to go back to the altar. Give yourself away. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Give yourself away completely to where you are no longer your own to protect. You belong to God. You'll leave your protection to him. And then as God brings a crushing into your life, yeah, it hurts, of course it does. But it's the kind of pain that brings about good things. Because without crushing, without heat, you don't have bread, you don't have light, you don't have the fragrance that's supposed to emanate from our souls. So as we look at this, another thing we'll notice is that out here these objects are made out of bronze or brass. This is solid brass, this is brass over wood. But when you come into here, things are made out of gold. The menorah is solid gold, and the altar and the table are made out of wood covered with gold. And then when you come into the ark, to the Holy of Holies, the box is made out of wood covered with gold, but the lid is made out of solid gold. A study you might want to do is take those objects that are made out of solid metals like the labor and the menorah and the arc cover and study those because they're made out of solid metals. But then you could do another study on the things that are made out of wood covered with metal like the altar here, the table and the altar here, and then the box of the ark. Two good studies that you could do. Another thing I want you to notice is the orientation. If you're familiar with geometry, if you did geometry in school, and I'm assuming most of you did, you know you've got an x-axis, and the laver and the altar are on an x-axis, but then the table and the menorah are on a y-axis, and then the box and the lid are on a Z-axis. They're directly above each other. So you've got the X and the Y and the Z. Another thing, you'll notice there's quite a bit of distance between these two. But then when you come into the holy place, the distance decreases between these two. But then in the holy of holies, there's no distance between the lid and the box. They are in contact. One of the things I learned from this is that the closer we draw to God, the more intimate the relationship is. And that goes along with the following. Out here, you can have any number of people. You can have hundreds of people out here. Only the priests come in here. It's a little lonelier. Only the priests. No one else is allowed into the holy place then only the high priest gets to come in here once a year. Some people fear loneliness. And so they want to be with a crowd all the time. But if you want to draw close to God, there's only room for one in his Holy of Holies. There's only room for you. You can't go in there with your husband or your wife or your kids or your best friends. You go in there by yourself. And for you to do that means you need to withdraw from your husband and your wife and your kids and your friends. You need to take time each day to go into God's presence just by yourself or you can never get to know him. And the invitation is open to us because recall that when Yeshua died on the cross, this veil was torn torn in two. It was ripped in two as if God is saying, until now, I've been closed for business except once a year with the high priest. But now through the, through the sacrifice of Yeshua, please come in. I want to spend time with you. You see, everything about the tabernacle is also a picture of a, a way back into the garden. Remember when Adam and Eve, they, they walked with God in the cool of the evening? And there in the... The center of the garden was the tree of life. But when they sinned against God, they were driven out toward the east, this direction, because the opening of the tabernacle was always toward the east. And there were two cherubim placed to protect, return to the garden. And if you read the description of this veil, there were cherubim embroidered into the veil as if they're protecting the way back to the place where the tree of life is, where the Torah is. Later when Moses would complete writing the Torah, it was placed right beside the Ark. And we know that the Torah is a tree of life to those who grasp it and all its supporters are praiseworthy. And it says long life is at its right hand and riches and honor are at its left. It's a tree of life. It has good fruit. So, when God gives Moses instructions for the people to build a tabernacle, it's like he says, I want to make myself accessible to them again. And the tree of life is going to once again return to earth, right here. It's going to take the form of a scroll. And in that scroll, if you meditate on it, if you build it into your life, you're going to experience real fruit, real life. And one day a year, the cherubim will part, and the high priest can come in. And of course, when Yeshua died, those two cherubim, the veil was torn, and they, they moved aside as if to say, the path to the tree of life is once again open to you. It's an amazing thing. Well, we have to come in according to the right steps. We have to stop first at the altar. We have to give ourselves to God. We must be clean. We need to be cleansed of our sins. And don't ever think for a moment you put your sins on the altar. You don't put junk and and refuse on the altar. Now, you leave that outside of the tabernacle. It's not even allowed in. You put yourself on the altar. That's what you do. And every time a person would bring a sacrifice and place on the altar, they always pictured every single time that this sacrifice is a picture of myself. It was always a living picture of themselves being the sacrifice. You need to come in. You need to experience God's crushing. And therefore, from that, you can experience the light God wants to bring from your life. He wants, you can experience the, 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 the nourishment that comes from a rich inner world in their life with God. You can experience the fragrance that comes from being crushed. And then here, best of all, you get to experience true unity and oneness and intimacy with God. I want you to put your thinking caps on for a moment. I mentioned that these planks that make up the Mishkan were covered with gold. So picture yourself walking into the holy place. So here you are. And in front of you, you see this veil with cherubim, these heavenly beings embroidered in it. When you look up right directly overhead, you would see this, this beautiful uh, blue, purple, and red woven uh, fabric with cherubim embroidered all in it. These are angelic beings. Out here in the courtyard, when you look up, you see the sun, moon, and stars. But when you walk in to this more confined space, you look up, you see the heavenlies. But what happens if you look to the right or to the left? You have these walls completely covered with gold. Gold is very reflective. So I look to the right. Look who I see. I see me. When I look to the left, oh, there I am again. But even more than that, this left wall is going to reflect the right wall, and the right wall is going to reflect the left. It would look like it goes on forever. Reflections of reflections. It would be like stepping into this confined space, but feeling like you're in a much larger space. And spiritually speaking, you are. Because I don't care how big your body is, your soul should be growing and becoming enormous. Your soul is like an entire world. And yet so many believers keep their souls closed off because it's too noisy in there. It's too riddled with emotions. They don't really know themselves at all. But to come into here takes courage because you're going to see yourself like you've never seen yourself before. And the Holy of Holies, now you're surrounded by three walls of gold. When I look ahead past the ark, I see me. When I look to the left, I see me. When I look to the right, I see me. I see me from all these angles. I look up, I see the heavenlies, and then there's the ark, the God Shekinah glory, glowing from it. It's kind of a wild trip when you think about it. But the more you step away from the crowd, and the more you go into the rich inner world, of the soul and especially of the spirit. You're going to see yourself warts and all. And you need to have the courage to do that. We need to take the time to take a close look at ourselves. And isn't the Torah called a mirror? James talks about the Torah as being like a mirror and we we look into the mirror. And when you look in a mirror there are always two images you see. You see You see what you actually look like. I know in the morning when I get out of bed and I go into the bathroom and I look in the mirror and I think, that can't be accurate, but it is. But I see see the reality of what I look like, but there's a second image that's formed. That's the image in my mind of what I should look like and what I can do to fix it. So I can make the image I see with my eyes begin to match the image to the degree it's possible that I see in my mind. Well, the Torah does that for the soul. You may think you look one way, but when you look into the perfect law of liberty, the liberating Torah, you see how you really look, and you'll see how you should look. And with God's help, you can make the alterations that need to be made. foods the sacrifices were foods that you ate There was meat and these are foods that are bought, brought by the people bring sacrifices but there's food in here as well there is the table of the showbread this is just for the priest but in here there's food also there's a jar of manna this is heavenly food so this food out here is brought by the people bringing sacrifices this food in here is brought by the priest This food comes directly from heaven. But I want you to notice one other thing. There's no foundation to this building. It was just built right on the ground. They might have to move some rocks out of the way. They'd find a flat surface and up goes the tabernacle. There was no foundation there were these uh, these little sockets that went under the planks all the way around so they it protect them uh, from, from the dirt but, and help hold them in place. But there was no foundation. And you walked barefoot in here. The, the priest did anyway. And uh, it was just their feet right against the dirt. There was no floor. But in Matthew 16, when Yeshua comes along and he asked his disciples, "Who, who do men say that I am? And they gave some suggestions. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Yeshua said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. In other words, you've connected with the spiritual. You have heard something and realized something that Human reasoning did not reveal. And he goes on to tell Peter, upon this rock, I will build my call." In other words, he's saying, Peter, this is the foundation that I'm going to build the tabernacle on. The tabernacle's been moving through the wilderness and it's been moving to a few different places once they came into the land. But eventually, it had to find a foundation. And we know that the temple's then built on the temple mount and the tabernacle took on a more permanent kind of a structure. Solomon built it, and later on it was restored, and Herod expanded it. But it wasn't until the right foundation was found did it come to rest. And so the tabernacle is kind of odd. Unlike other buildings where you make the foundation first, then build up, the tabernacle existed first. And spiritually speaking, it was looking for a foundation and that foundation is Messiah. You're the tabernacle. I'm the tabernacle of God's Spirit. Messiah is our foundation. So, I have some discussion questions for you. In your own words, describe the difference between the Spirit and the soul. Number two, what alteration did God later make to the pattern of the tabernacle? And let me give you a little hint here. When God tore that veil from top to bottom, that is a picture of the circumcision of the heart to where the soul and spirit begin to come together and become one, to where God's spirit and my own mind, will, and emotions are so infused together they can't really divide one from the other. I pray that someday, someday before I die, I will come to the point where my mind and God's mind are so aligned my will and his will are so aligned. My emotions and his are so aligned. It's kind of hard to tell me from Messiah. That's the goal. I don't have real high hopes for myself, but you know, I've seen bits of progress over the years. and I'm not dead yet, so there's always hope. Number three, discuss how you can use the tabernacle as a guide to prayer. I've put a link in the resources in the bottom of the the notes, and you can click on that or type it in or just go to our Beth DeCoon website. In the search box, type in tabernacle, and what will pop up is a teaching done by our, our dear brother Steve Meeks. And um, he did a teaching. I think it's probably about the first teaching he did at Beth Decoom. And um, he talked about praying through the tabernacle, using this as a pattern for prayer. Briefly, it means entering. Am I ready to come in? Are there things I need to leave behind? Coming to the altar, renewing my commitment to give myself completely to God. Coming to the labor, asking God to cleanse me. My heart and my hands. Because, you know, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord? He who has a clean hands and a clean heart. So we ask God to cleanse us. And then we come into a, a deeper level of prayer. And where I meditate on God's word. I can take a psalm and take this beautiful spiritual food and pray it back to God and be nourished by it. Where... I can come to the menorah and say, God, make me a light. I'm to be a light to the world, So crush anew what needs to be crushed so there's oil in my lamp, the wicks are trimmed, and, and that it's set aflame so I can be a light for you, and then balance, because the menorah has to be balanced. And then we come to a place of prayer where we can bring our, our, our requests to God and our praises to him, and then come to the Holy of Holies and just be quiet. Because as it says in Psalms, to you, Lord, silence is praise. And sometimes it just comes to a place where we're we're quiet. Because when God spoke, he says, I'll speak to you from above the ark cover. There are those two cherubim and their wings touched above the top. So you have this empty space framed. That empty space is the very heart of the tabernacle. Because out of that Nothingness. God spoke. We want to hear God speak. Get away from the noise of the crowd. Move in to the holy place, and then, with fear and trembling, and joy and love, come into the holy of holies and be still and just listen and let God speak. That's the formula. So listen to to Steve's teaching, praying through the tabernacle, using this as a pathway to really into a a deeper, deeper level of prayer than maybe you've ever experienced. So speaking of prayer, let's do that right now. Our Father and King, thank you so much for the wonder of the tabernacle. Lord, I pray we would ponder these things, think on these things, meditate on these things, and allow your tabernacle to occupy our souls, our minds, so that we can more reflect the pattern that you have established for us. And as we bring our lives, spirit, soul, and body, in more alignment with your pattern, we might experience your indwelling to a degree we never have before. Make us the people you want us to be. And Father, here you give us the pattern for what that looks like. So we thank you, Lord, for giving us the light of your truth, the light of your Torah. And we praise you for it in the name of the light of the world, Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.